Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our uh, passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. Uh, before I was a believer, I was a fan of boxing. Now, uh, for various reasons, I'm not much of a fan of the sport today, but at one time I was. And uh, back when I was a boxing fan, there was one historic match that always fascinated me. It was one of the most anticipated fights in what was at that time perhaps the most popular sport in the world with arguably the most recognizable face on the planet. October 30th, 1974, Kinshasa Zaire. Young heavyweight champion George Foreman would take on perhaps the best heavyweight fighter of all time, the one and only Muhammad Ali. Leading up to the fight, Foreman had earned a reputation for being one of the greatest punchers of all time. In fact, he had absolutely blown through the heavyweight division while annihilating some of the greatest heavyweights who ever fought. For example, both Joe Frazier and Ken Norton, both of whom had actually defeated Ali, they were both knocked out by Foreman within two rounds in matches leading up to the fight. Ali's style was to move, to dance, and, and jab his opponents into later rounds. He won on stamina and speed. But Foreman was an expert at closing off the ring and trapping his opponent. There simply seemed no way that the older Ali could beat the 26-year-old heavyweight. So odds going into the fight were 3-1 to one in favor of George Foreman. As the fight began, rather than jabbing, Ali began with several straight right crosses, which were strong punches that surprised Foreman and set him back on his heels. Foreman quickly regrouped, though, and he began to work his craft. By round two, Ali was literally on the ropes, and Foreman began to unload powerful shots on Ali. End of round two, Joe Frazier, who was announcing ringside, began to openly question why Ali wasn't doing more to get off the ropes. It was simply suicide to allow George Foreman to open up and launch such devastating blows on him. Round three, round four, Ali stayed on the ropes. He kept absorbing punch after punch from Foreman. By the end of round five, however, it became apparent that Foreman was growing tired. And as Foreman tired, Ali was able to begin landing several series of counter punches. By round six, it became apparent that Ali wasn't losing the fight. He was actually winning it. Foreman was tired. And it gave Ali more and more opportunities to attack. By round eight, Foreman was swinging wild punches, more out of defense from the attacking Ali than from anything else. And then suddenly a flurry from Ali and Foreman goes down in the words of the announcer sitting ringside like a tree struck by lightning. Ali had won and boxing history was made. After the fight, Ali revealed that he had intentionally sat on the ropes. It was actually his plan all along going into the fight. He even had a name for the strategy. He called, <laughs> Ali had a name for everything. He called it the rope-a-dope. Foreman was so devastating a puncher that he had never had to fight more than four rounds. And Ali knew that. And so he allowed Foreman to punch himself out, to become tired, so tired that he would slow down and then give Ali the opportunity he needed to use his speed and accuracy against him. It turned out that what had first appeared to be a very foolish strategy to even the best boxing experts sitting ringside was in fact incredibly brilliant. It accomplished a feat that no one thought possible, the defeat of big George Foreman. And it's with this in mind that we now turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Once again, our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 1. 26 through 31. A couple of weeks ago, we took a look at 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, and there we learned that in the cross, God is intentionally saving through a message that appears foolish to the world. 
Of course, the message of salvation through the cross of Christ is widely rejected by the vast majority of those who are considered wise in this world. In Paul's day, it didn't contain the philosophical knowledge that the Greek accepted, and neither did it provide the kind of supernatural signs that the Jews looked for. And so it is in our day as well. The world still can't accept a message that seems so foolish to our modern sensibilities. And to this point, Paul explains that this is because God intends to save by power, not wisdom. When it comes to salvation, none of us has simply figured it out because, as Paul explains, the cross is actually intentionally designed to contradict human wisdom. Meaning we can only believe in the power of the cross when God opens up our eyes to perceive the truthfulness and wisdom of Jesus Christ, which he does by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think if we ponder that concept for very long, a question is naturally going to arise. And that question is, why would God save this way? Why would he choose to save by power rather than according to wisdom? That can seem like a pretty foolish strategy. I mean, you know, wouldn't more believe if he saved according to wisdom? That's something that you and I can think that a message that seems wise to the world would be a more effective way of reaching the world. Well, in this passage, Paul provides the answer to this question by giving us two reasons why God chooses to save through power rather than wisdom. Again, that's two reasons why God chooses to save through power rather than through wisdom. And in this, we learn that like Ali's rope-a-dope, God's strategy may seem foolish to those on the outside, but when you dig into it, you discover that it's actually the most effective means of accomplishing the goal he has in mind. Let's go ahead and read the passage together and let's discover what that goal is and how the foolishness of the cross accomplishes that goal. Once again, the passage is 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. And in this passage, Paul follows up this idea that God intends to save through a foolish message by explaining, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So why is it that God chooses to save through a foolish message, a message that we're all incapable of believing apart from the work of the Holy Spirit? Once again, Paul provides two reasons. And the first reason is this. Number one, to discourage boasting in the flesh. God saves by power rather than human wisdom in order to discourage all boasting in the flesh. Paul begins this passage by imploring the Corinthians to consider their relatively low status. He says, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I want you to remember, as Paul writes these words, there's a kind of competition taking place in the Corinthian church. The Corinthians have been attempting to exalt themselves above each other in pride, and they've been doing this by making claims about various teachers, saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Christ. So before Paul gets into the rest of this letter, where he's going to address some concepts that the Corinthians seem to have taken issue with, some ideas that they may even be questioning Paul over, he first seeks to address the problem that's at the source of this disagreement, and that's the Corinthians' worldliness and pride. This is why he pointed out the foolishness of the cross. He wanted to remind the Corinthians that the message they believe in creates very little room for boasting. In fact, the world regards it as utterly foolish. And so now here in his, his effort to humble the Corinthians, he changes the direction of his argument and he goes from the foolishness of the cross and he shifts it to the foolishness of the church. 
And he does this in order to give evidence to the claims he's just made chiefly that God can save through foolishness because he's wiser and stronger than men. The key word here is for. Paul has just said that God saves through power, not wisdom. Now Paul says that this is how you can know God saves through power rather than wisdom. And he points to the church. He says that there are not many wise in the church. The word here is sophoi, and it means not just knowledgeable, but skillful. Wisdom, of course, is knowledge applied skillfully in a beneficial way. So these would be those who have knowledge, but who can use it skillfully. It's actually the same word that was used up in verses 19 and 25 earlier in this chapter, meaning this would refer to the Greek philosophers and the Jewish scribes that we discussed last time. Again, these are the teachers of the law, men who can quote scripture forwards and backwards and who can resolve all the difficult interpretations of the law. These are likewise men trained in literature, philosophy, and rhetoric, men who can intelligently twist a phrase to turn your own arguments against you. Essentially, these are the ancient equivalent to the lawyers and the university professors of our time. And as we discussed last time, these are not in the Corinthian church. And the reason they're not in the Corinthian church is because they reject the gospel as foolish. It doesn't make any sense to them. Paul also points out that there are not many mighty in the Corinthian church. The word here is dunatoi. It uses the same Greek root as the word uh, from which we get dynamite. It means most basically powerful. This isn't likely in reference to physical power, rather it's a reference to social or political power. Uh, for instance, in Acts 25.5, the word is used in a similar context, and the ESV translated there as men of authority. The NAS says influential men. These are those who have the ability to make things happen because of their office or authority. Some have even suggested that this could refer to slave owners or military leaders. These are people with authority over others, people of significance who can influence others with a command. Basically, they get others to do what they want for them. Again, this would be your modern-day congressman or city council member or your successful, charming, well-connected businessman. Paul says there are not many of these in the Corinthian church either. Finally, he notes that there are not many noble. Here, the word is eugenes. It means literally well-born. These are those born into the best families in Corinth, those who are considered noble and who receive respect merely by the family they're born into. There isn't much of an equivalent uh, for this in our society since we tend not to believe in the nobility of birth, but there are still some families that have attained such political or social status that simply being a part of the family can give a person a certain amount of influence or prestige. You think of the Kennedys, for instance or the Bushes, uh, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts. Very few of the Corinthians enjoy this kind of status as well. Now, I do want you to note here, Paul says that there are not many wise, mighty, or noble according to the flesh in Corinth. And that's an important distinction that he's making here. The use of this term refers to the external or outward side of life. It refers to appearance. It's what's considered wise or powerful according to outward appearance, according to what man sees. That's an important distinction to make because, once again, Paul is not saying that the Corinthians are not wise. Again, Paul's just stated in the preceding verses that the cross is wisdom. And so you could say that the Corinthians are, in fact, incredibly wise for believing it. He's not meaning to shake their confidence in the gospel here by reminding them of how insignificant they are. Rather, his point is to get them thinking about how foolish their rivalries really are. Remember, the Corinthians are wanting to make distinctions amongst themselves and boast about how wise they are by saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ, as if their knowledge is a basis for boasting, as if this can be the basis for creating distinctions in the body of Christ. And what Paul's pointing out here is that they're forgetting where they came from. They're forgetting who they really are. The truth is, not many of the Corinthian believers are really of any reputation to begin with. Instead, they're the low in society. The reality is that the church at, at this time in history was filled most often with the dregs of society. 
Christianity was most popular among slaves, women, and children who weren't really esteemed in the world at this time. These were people who possessed very little earthly wisdom, people who had no political power or nobility. In fact, one ancient writer, an anti-Christian philosopher by the name of Selfish, once said this regarding Christians. He said, their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. He says, by the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and little children. Friends, this was the nature of the early church. It attracted the outcasts of society, the low. And yet the Corinthians are, are wanting to make distinctions among themselves about who's the greatest, who's the smartest. Guys, this is like students arguing over who got the highest F. You know, I can tell you as a teacher, I, I saw that from time to time. One student would get like a 57 on their test and then their friend would hold up there sitting next to him and go, oh yeah, I got a 59. And I always was, you know, baffled by that. How is a 59 ever something to boast in? But that's exactly what's going on in Corinth. And, and in context, Paul is saying, by the way, he's saying, by the way, do you want to see proof that God saves by power instead of wisdom? Take a look in the mirror, guys. I mean, that, that's probably got a lot of sting a little bit, right? Paul's saying, look, if the cross was according to human wisdom, then why is the church made up of you guys? The power is God's power is demonstrated in the fact that he saved you. Again, that should sting a little bit, but it's true. The Corinthian church was not made up of the intellectual and social elite in Corinth. Now, Paul's point here is important. What he's saying is that God's power in salvation is demonstrated through the church. The church is the visible manifestation of God's power in salvation. When you look at the church, what you see is this variety, wide variety of people, some mighty, some noble, some wise, but mostly those who aren't esteemed by their culture. And what this demonstrates is that they are not in Christ by anything of their own doing. They didn't logically figure out their way to salvation. They didn't use their political connections to get it. And they weren't born into it. They are saved simply by the power of God. This is important for us to realize as we seek to understand why God saves through power rather than wisdom. Because the church becomes the means by which God accomplishes his goal. Let me repeat that. The church is going to become the means, we're going to see here, it becomes the means by which God executes his plan. In a sense, the church serves as God's rope-a-dope. It becomes the means by which God reels the world in and starts landing his knockout blows against their pride and their arrogance. Paul continues by explaining why God desires to save such a low and despised people. He says, verses 27 through 29, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul explains that God chooses the low in order to shame the proud. And do you know how this works? There's actually a very practical aspect to it. When Paul says God chooses this people to shame the wise and the mighty, I think he has a very specific concept of shaming that he has in mind here. And it's not an eschatological shaming. It's not a shaming that occurs at the end of the age, not, at least not primarily. That's what I used to think this verse means. I thought it referred to a shaming that would take place at the end of the age when the truth was finally made known. And then the church would finally see how foolish the wisdom of the world is as the wise and the mighty and the noble are condemned. But the verb for shame in these verses is actually in the present tense, and it indicates that God chose the low to continually shame the wise and the mighty. 
This includes the present as well as the future. Further, Paul isn't talking about a shaming that only God or the church sees, as if God realizes the wise and mighty have been put to shame, but the wise and mighty don't realize that they've been put to shame. And how do we know that? We know it because of God's intended result, which we discover in verse 29 when he says that this happens so that no man may boast before God. There's a conscious reaction on the part of men. God wants the wise and the mighty to perceive their shame and cease their boasting. So what's Paul talking about? How do the foolish, the weak, the base, and the things that are not, literally the nothings in this verse, how do they shame the wise and the mighty such that those proud people cease their boasting? I think the answer is found in that what the low gain in Christ exposes the emptiness of what the high and mighty possess. Let me say that one more time. What the low gain in Christ exposes the emptiness of what the high and the mighty possess. You know, the wise man waxes philosophically, and in the Greek world they would do this in order to discover what's right, what's moral and ethical, and then try to pursue that course of wisdom. If you ever read, say, uh, Plato's Republic, you'd see this. The ancient Greek philosophers didn't use philosophy so much to answer questions about who we are and where we're going, as much as they used it to discover how to leave a vir lead a virtuous life. They sought to use knowledge to become moral, upstanding people. Well, in Christ, an uneducated child indwelled by the Holy Spirit can possess a life of virtue and righteousness that exceeds the wisest of these philosophers. In reflection upon that lowly child, the philosophers begin to see how little their knowledge is worth, even according to their desired goals. In the same way, the influential pursue power in order to gain whatever they desire. They command or influence people to serve them because they think that in this they're going to find their contentment. Or uh, that can be you know, material things that they gain through their power, or it can be the satisfaction they get from other men who praise them for their power, whatever it may be. But in Christ, the lowly slave, who has no power or influence, can possess a joy in every single situation they're faced with, which surpasses any joy that money can buy. The influential strive and strive for power, and all they earn for their striving is more anxiety, less comfort and joy. It doesn't compare to the powerless slave who, like Paul, has learned to be content in any and every circumstance. Their influence is exposed as worthless in comparison with the joy that the slave finds in Christ. The noble think that by their birth they have been granted a certain dignity, that they should be respected by men. They might even dress themselves in beautiful clothes like Herod in Acts 12, so they can hear the people call out the voice of a God and not a man. And they think that by their nobility they'll be recognized as great, as worthy to be praised. And yet the woman who is of no status in Greco-Roman society can demonstrate a dignity and courage as she faces martyrdom for her faith that far surpasses the glory that any earthly robes or crown can bring. She demonstrates their glory means nothing. An ancient un, a Roman unbeliever by the name of Galen he remarked that most of the Christians of his time were too ignorant to understand a logical, logical argument. And so because of that, they had to receive truth through parables rather than philosophy. He says they're too stupid to understand an intelligent argument, so you've got to tell them stories. And he said this about the Christians. He said, just as now we see the people called Christians drawing their faith from parables and miracles, and yet sometimes acting in the same way as those who philosophize. He says, for their contempt of death and its sequel is patent to us every day, and likewise their restraint and cohabitation. For they include not only men, but also women who refrain from cohabiting all through their lives. And they also number individuals who in self-discipline and self-control, in matters of food and drink, and in their keen pursuit of justice, have attained a pitch not inferior to that of genuine philosophers. Friends, if you're a, a famous influential Greek philosopher, the cross may sound foolish to you. It may smack against all your sensibilities. But when you sit down and you talk 
to an uneducated slave, and that slave possesses a righteousness that puts the righteousness you pursue in your philosophy to shame. And when he has a joy that surpasses the joy that you've tried to gain in all your power and philosophy, and when there's a quiet dignity about him as he humbly submits himself to others without any hint of anxiety or fear, Listen, the cross may look foolish in your eyes, but you can't deny its power. All of a sudden, your philosophy doesn't look so appealing. Your influence looks empty. It causes you to realize how little you know. It humbles you, and in this way, it even prepares you to accept the fact that maybe you don't know so much after all. Just maybe the problem isn't the cross and its wisdom. Maybe the problem is you. And that's the rope-a-dope. God saves a foolish people through a foolish message. And through that, He invites the world's attack. They bite. They call the cross foolish. They call, they call the church stupid. There's only one reason why uh, people would believe a message like this, and that's because they're stupid. They call it all foolish. And then God counterpunches with truth radiating out of the lives of this foolish people. Friends, if the low one who has obtained has obtained what the world ultimately desires through his foolishness, then what does that say about the wisdom of the world? It says their wisdom is empty. It's nothing. It says that the wisdom of the world is powerless. It's foolishness. And that's precisely the intent God has in mind by saving a foolish people through a foolish message with power. He's seeking the elimination of all boasting in the flesh. Paul says that God shames the wise by use of the low in society, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, the verse as it's translated reads, so that no human being may, might boast, but literally it's so that all flesh might not boast before God. It's not no human being might boast, it's all flesh might not boast. And the difference in translation is crucial. It's all-inclusive, all flesh. You know, the, the ESV translation takes an exclusive tone. God's actions exclude all men from the act of boasting. But Paul is actually being inclusive. He's being intentional about showing how the effects of God's actions are meant to spread, spread to every type of man. All flesh, he says. Meaning the wise, the ignorant, the mighty, the weak, the somebodies, and the nobodies, they all lose their ability to boast in themselves. By starting with the low, everyone loses any reason to boast in human flesh. And that's because the low, of course, they already know they have no reason to boast in the flesh because they don't really have anything to boast of in the flesh. I mean, a slave realizes he can't boast because he knows he has no rights in his society. He, he see, can see clearly that there's nothing according to the flesh that would make him pleasing in God's sight. But at the same time, the high and the mighty are humbled as well because what the low gain in Christ exposes the fact that all that they have is really meaningless as well. The wisdom evident in the life of his foolish slave exposes the emptiness of everything the master boasts in. He realizes that he's chasing after shadows. So again, why does God say by power through a foolish message? Well, he does it so he can demonstrate his power through a foolish people. God desires to set aside a people who don't have any discernible qualities or characteristics that would make them pleasing in the world, who appear too ignorant to even keep up with the best and the brightest of society. And he desires to set this people aside so that as his wisdom and power are made known through this people, then the wisdom and power and nobility of the world is shown for what it really is. And that's absolutely nothing. And as a result, even the, the proud are eventually made low in the realization of their own emptiness. They're brought down to their knees. They're humbled. God saves through power so he can set aside a people that exposes the foolishness of the world. And in this, God actually prepares the proud to receive the, this foolish message of salvation. I think many Christians remember that moment when they realized for the first time that this message, that they've come to embrace and rejoice in, has been rejected by the world as foolish. The first time when they realized that they are even seen as foolish by the world. 
I think many Christians make one of two mistakes when they make that realization. Either they get discouraged and they stop sharing the gospel. You know, perhaps they feel uh, unequipped to keep up with the intellectual arguments of the world. They think, I don't want to bring shame to Christ. And so they cease trying to, you know, evangelize rather than lose an argument. They get discouraged. That's one route. Or, number two, they try to get even. Perhaps they set about storing up every counterpoint and rebuttal they can find in an effort to blow the world's intellect out of the water. Point is, they don't want Christians to be viewed as ignorant by the world, and so they try to show the world they aren't fools with clever arguments. And ladies and gentlemen, you have to understand both reactions are mistakes at one level or another because they act as if the world comes to Christ through the cleverness of our gospel proclamation. And one must realize that while the world must accept the cross as wise before it can accept Christ as Lord, it doesn't come to that conclusion through clever arguments. It comes to this conclusion, rather, through the transformed lives of Christ's people. You know, so much of the Christian life is filled with paradoxes. We think the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And God often tells us that the quickest way, actually, to get to point A from point B is to go in the exact opposite direction of point A. And this actually makes sense. I mean, it should be that way if you stop and think about it, right? Because our minds are fallen. We have no clue what we're doing apart from God's revelation to us. So it makes sense that there's going to be all these paradoxes that we come across in the Christian faith. Well, it's the same way here in the way we evangelize. We see the world's rejection of the cross and so we think, you know, I have to pursue the world more. And we do that by engaging the world on their territory. And the problem is that when we do this, we only validate their estimation of the system of wisdom that they ascribe to. In actuality, when we see the world's rejection of the cross, our reaction should be to run in the opposite direction of the world by pursuing Christ more, by embracing more wholeheartedly what the world rejects. Because when we do this, God accomplishes what is necessary to properly humble the world to come to the point of salvation. I think this is why God sent Jesus into the world as an uneducated, lowly carpenter. In John, 17 verses, uh, John 7, verses 15 and 16, Jesus is teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles, and the people are astonished by the wisdom of his teaching. And they even say, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? And do you know how Jesus responds? He says, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. And do you see what's happening there? If the Son of God had come into the world as the son of a brilliant rabbi and a well-connected family in Jerusalem, then people could discount his message or his wisdom as being the result of an excellent education and upbringing. But when he comes from the son of a Galilean carpenter, it verifies to the world that his message is not his own. It comes from God. I mean, you think about it. Jesus picks a, a hodgepodge group of disciples to be his followers. He takes a, a fisherman, a tax collector, uh, a nationalistic radical, uh, the group almost completely Galilean. They're not even Judean. And when the Spirit is poured out on them at Pentecost, what's the crowd's reaction? You guys remember? They say, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? The answer, right? is that the message is from God. There's no other explanation. And so when Peter speaks, you know, then they finally listen. When these uneducated fishermen have that kind of knowledge, it becomes evident that God is working in them and 3,000 people come to salvation that day. Guys, when are we ever going to get to the point that we realize that God's power is made perfect in weakness? In other words, be courageous. Don't think you have to know everything in order for the wise to accept Christ. In fact, I would encourage you, when you can't keep up with their arguments, believe it or not, there's a sense in which it's playing directly into God's hands. Because when you live out the wisdom that defies their understanding of how wisdom happens, it proclaims the work of God in you and it exposes the emptiness of the things they value. 
Unfortunately, many Christians focus on their doctrine almost to the complete exclusion of their Christian walk because they've heard passages like Romans 10, which states that people come to faith by hearing. And, and this is true, of course. Faith does come by hearing. But what is it that verifies the message we proclaim? I mean, think about it. How do you define whether or not something's true? It's typically by whether or not it corresponds to reality, right? I mean, I, I believe that the law of gravity is true. Because when I drop my phone, it smashes into pieces on the ground. So how do you demonstrate that the cross, as foolish as it may seem, has power to redeem man from sin and bring them into a joyful relationship with their creator who's worthy to receive worship? Friends, it's by the lives of Christians who demonstrate their redemption with their transformed lives. By the lives of Christians who demonstrate a peace that surpasses understanding, who demonstrate a joy in God that is contrary to their circumstances. It's by the lives of Christians who love because God first loved them. I remember when I first started attending my home church in Nashville, I was a militant Arminian. I thought the concept of divine election in salvation disgraced God. And I absolutely refused to attend any church that taught what I believed to be such a thoroughly repugnant doctrine. I didn't know a whole lot at the time, though, so I started attending this church not realizing what they believed. And it was about a few months in that I started, it started to dawn on me that they believed in the concept of divine election. I didn't realize it at first. It took place over time. But you know, once it dawned on me, I didn't leave. And you know why I didn't leave? It was because their love for each other was so evident in their lives. I distinctly remember thinking to myself, you know, I don't like their doctrine, but I'd better listen to what they have to say because it seems to be working. One Christian writer tells the following story. He says, When I was a youngster, a brilliant novelist, an atheist from an atheistic communist family, came to our little town in Canada to gather local color for a book he was writing. One day he was visiting with our family and he got real serious. He said, can I ask you questions about your religion? Even though I had been wrestling with doubts from time to time, I said yes. He asked, do you really believe there's a God who knows my name? I said, yeah, that's what I believe. He said, do you believe the Bible's true? Babies born of virgins, dead people coming out of the cemetery? I said, yes, that's what I believe. And then he said with great emotion, I'd give anything to believe that. Because I've traveled all over the world and I've seen that most people are miserable. The only people who really seem to be getting out of life what they want are the people who say they believe what you believe. But I just can't believe because my head keeps getting in the way. You see, it was the testimony of this Christian that was humbling that man. True doctrine always evidences itself in the change it produces in the life of the believer. The great shame is that when Christians dedicate themselves to doctrine, to the neglect of holy living, they actually undermine the message they proclaim and strengthen the claims of the secular world. A Christian draws attention to Christ by crying out to him, but when the unbeliever looks at their life, what do they see? Do they see someone who's redeemed by sin or do they see someone just like themselves? I fear too much of the time they don't see a transformed individual. And what does that tell them? It tells them their beliefs are broken. Attention has been drawn to Christ, but it's an attention that says Christ is futile, that he's impotent. Meanwhile, popular science denies God, and yet it produces results that the unbeliever perceives. You, they can hold an iPhone in their hand and feel the effects of medicine produced by unbelieving atheistic scientists who tell them to trust in scientific reasoning, which they claim disproves the Bible. Who are they to believe in that instance? The scientist's results match the claims he makes, whereas the Christian's results do not match their claims. True doctrine, true doctrine always evidences itself in the change it produces in the life of the believer. Listen, your doctrine means nothing if it's not accompanied with the transformed life that's fitting of that doctrine. It was the Corinthians' failure to understand this that caused Paul to write just 12 chapters later, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2. He says, If I speak in the tongue of men and angels but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move, remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. 
Now, I want you to understand here, I'm not advocating that we know nothing about how to defend our faith, but what I am saying is that your walk matters much, much more than your talk when it comes to telling people about Jesus. I mean, do you realize that the church spread fastest during its first four centuries when the doctrine of the average Christian was arguably at its weakest and when the love and holiness of the average Christian was arguably at its strongest? Brothers and sisters, if you want to impact your world for Jesus Christ, then focus on your walk first. Draw nearer and nearer to Christ. Flee the world and its wisdom because it's through this that God's power and wisdom are going to be made known through you. So we've seen that God saves by power in order to eliminate all boasting in the flesh. Let's look at the next reason why God saves through power. Reason number two, God saves through power to encourage boasting in God. Once again, God saves through power, not wisdom, first to discourage boasting in the flesh, and then second to encourage boasting in God. Having firmly grasped what Paul is saying in verses 26 through 29, this point is really just a logical conclusion of what we said so far, so we don't have to spend a whole lot of time trying to understand Paul's point here. Having reminded the Corinthians of their own humble origins, having explained why God chose them in their weakness, and having explained the intended result of God's method, chiefly the humility of all men, Paul now shifts attention back to focusing on the effect the power of God in salvation should have on the Corinthian church. Again, at this point, it should be clear that the Corinthians are saved by the power of God, both of, because of their humble origins, that they are not wise, and because of what God intends to do in the church, which is to use the weak to shame the strong. Now, Paul says, verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. The you here in this passage is emphatic. He's saying, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is making a contrast between the Corinthians and the wise in the world who are being put to shame. Again, the attention is shifting back to what God is doing in the Corinthians, not what he's doing in the wise and the mighty. That's what's the transition taking place here. Paul also is recapitulating his point. He says, and because of him, they are in Christ, pointing out that the Corinthians have believed in Christ Jesus by the power of God. He then briefly reminds them how God's power is indeed manifested in their lives through Christ. He says that because of God, Christ has become to them wisdom from God. And then he explains what he means by that by pointing out what they've received through Christ. He talks about how in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's the wisdom of God here, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The term righteousness here approximates salvation in some context. Here it likely refers to the righteousness uh, that the Christian receives in Christ at the point of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for instance, Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a righteousness that transforms a sinner uh, from being rejected in God's sight, an object of his divine wrath, into being a perfectly holy saint who's pleasing to him. The wise in the world sought to use their wisdom to find righteousness in Christ. The Corinthians found a righteousness that all the scribes searching in the law and all the Greeks in their philosophy couldn't find before God. The term sanctification probably refers to the progressively changed life that happens in a believer as a result of the presence of the Spirit of God, which is given to the believer at the point of faith. This is a changed life that came to the Corinthians, not through their power or their might, or even as a result of their understanding, but as a result of their simple faith in Jesus Christ. The mighty, the powerful, they seek to use their power to influence men, to build armies and nations and make themselves great. And in the church, we see lives transform men influenced to holiness through the power of Jesus Christ. As I was thinking about this idea, it made me think of a quote I once read by Napoleon. Of course, Napoleon would be considered powerful in any generation. 
In his day, all of Europe trembled at his name due to his ability to influence men and lead his armies into battle skillfully with wisdom. And yet Napoleon once made this incredibly insightful admission. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? He says, upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Though he died, it's yet clear that Jesus lives and reigns with power. And it's clear in the millions of men and women who every day walk in obedience, obedience to his commands, who are transformed by his power. It's evident through their sanctification. Redemption is slave terminology. It implies a deliverance or release from bondage. In Christ Jesus, believers are transformed from slaves in bondage to sin and, and into Satan uh, to obedient children of God, co-inheritors of Christ's blessings. The church may have been made up of slaves and women and children, but in Christ they become the adopted children of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Guys, this is a kind of nobility with a treasure that far exceeds the status and wealth that the world has to offer. And of course, it's by God's doing that the Corinthians have received these things. Why? Verse 31. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts... Boast in the Lord. You know, I think it's easy to misunderstand what boasting is. It's not merely pride. It's confidence. And it's a, it's a joyful confidence. You delight in what you boast in. And you delight in it because you're confident in it. You're glad it's your source of strength because you trust it. It's durable. It's unbreakable. I think about this idea. I think about when I was little. My friends and I, growing up, we'd get into arguments about whose dad could beat up the other person's dad. Did you guys ever get in arguments about that? We would. We boast about, oh, well, yeah, well, my dad could beat up your dad. And that's because in our eyes, our dads could do no wrong. And so it created this joyful confidence that caused us to boast of our dads before our friends. Well, God saved the Corinthians with a mighty hand, and he gave them all these wonderful gifts so that they would have a joyful confidence in him rather than in their own flesh. Meaning it's not just the world that should be affected through the demonstration of God's power in this lowly church. Actually, the Corinthians are also supposed to witness the superiority of what they've received in Christ apart from their own flesh, how they've received for free, and what, how that shames what the world has to offer, how empty the world's version of wisdom, power, and nobility are in comparison to what they've received for free in Christ. And the result is they should stop trusting in those things and begin to joyfully flee to God and freely receive what he has to offer by trusting in him instead. Unfortunately, by boasting in their own knowledge, it's as if it was their own flesh that they became wise rather than by the power of God. They're not just acting ignorantly by forgetting what God's done for them. Unfortunately, they're also acting very foolish by abandoning, abandoning the one who is the source of their knowledge. Is it any wonder why this church would be experiencing so many arguments and troubles? And they, in their pride, they forgot it wasn't them who saved themselves. It was God. And in their pride, they're beginning to esteem an inferior wisdom that's going to bring a predictably inferior result in a strife. They end up looking like the world because in esteeming the world's status, they've accepted the world's wisdom. They've abandoned the true source of wisdom in Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul starts his letter here. By reminding them of how they were saved, where their wisdom came from, and how that wisdom shames the world. He's doing this so that the Corinthians could be prepared to forsake that worldly way of thinking that's leading them to reject Paul and his counsel. And so he, before he can address all these different issues that the Corinthians have questions about, again, he first identifies the root of the problem. They're not submitted to the wisdom that's found in Christ. They're proud. 
And once they're humbled again, once that's settled, then he, begin, he can begin to address their concerns in a way that both satisfies their questions and exalts Christ. You know, boasting is in itself, uh, boasting in oneself isn't just a sin. It's utter foolishness. It ignores the truth of salvation. It ignores the fact that we didn't save ourselves, that nothing in us was found pleasing in God's sight. It's also foolish in that it reveals a person's acceptance of a broken system. God is revealing the emptiness of human thinking by delivering true wisdom, true power, true joy into the hands of weak men, and he's doing it by grace, apart from the wisdom of the world. To boast in your own worldly wisdom is to boast in a broken vessel that can't hold water. True wisdom comes from God, and it removes any ability for a person to boast in themselves. In fact, can I say this? The more you boast in your knowledge, the more you show how ignorant you really are. The more you boast in your knowledge, the more you show how ignorant you truly are. That's why Paul says concerning the Corinthians' arrogance with Christian liberty in chapter 8, he says, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. The more arrogant you are, the more ignorant you are. You cannot be both wise and proud. They contradict. You have to make a choice of which you want to be. And I'll tell you this, the world can tell the difference. There have been many gospel conversations that have been ruined because the arrogant believer sought to crush the foolishness of the unbeliever through their argumentation rather than simply sharing the gospel with them in kindness and love and then relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Should we be ready to answer the unbeliever's questions? Certainly. Should we tell the truth of their state before God, which means telling them about the wrath of God? Absolutely. But there's a difference between merely seeking to prove the unbeliever wrong and begging them as ambassadors of Christ to be reconciled to God. There have been many times when in merely seeking to prove the unbeliever wrong, the Christian has won the argument but lost the soul. All because the unbeliever senses the believer's arrogance and leaves the conversation rejecting the foolishness of Christ's disciples. Not Christ. So how do you avoid this kind of pride and then put on the beauty of Christ-likeness, this character that again is, you know, presents the power of God to the world in such a way that it humbles them? I think it's by remembering what Paul is reminding the Corinthians here. That it's by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus. You remember that you understand the truth, not because you're so smart you figured it out. You remember that the only reason you see is because God opened your eyes. When you share the gospel, you don't despise the unbeliever. Instead, you go, but by the grace of God, there go I. You remember what has been given to you in Christ. He has become your wisdom, your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption. You remember that you have been given for free something greater than all the wisdom and power or nobility of this world can acquire. And, you, and as you do this, friends, you'll begin to naturally boast in God. You'll begin to freely and joyfully brag to others about what a great God you serve. And at that point, your goal is going to be to truly share good news with other people. And when that happens, they may reject the cross as foolish. But they won't deny, won't be able to deny the love and the joy that's being worked out in you. And it's that testimony that demonstrates the power of God. And it's that testimony which will shame the proud and prepare them to humbly receive the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.